Hello, everybody, and welcome to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Today, I am joined by the most effectively run co-host in the history of this episode of Soccer 101. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hello, Taylor. That's very kind, but I'm not. I'm not sure how <laughs> accurate that is, given. Uh, how much of a mess my life frequently seems to be and how many illnesses I pick up. I can't imagine a football club picking up as many illnesses as I do would be particularly efficient. I thought about that, which is why I shortened it to this specific episode, Graham, because <laughs> Joe's not here. Ryan's not here. Ryan's sick. Ryan's not here because he's sick. Graham is here powering through. That's an effective co-host, my friends, <laughs> uh, which is my way of introducing today's topic of conversation, unless Graham wants to take any shots at Ryan or Joe while they are not here. Uh, I mean, not Joe. I mean, Joe's too nice. Why would I take yeah. shots at Joe? Just That's fair. Ryan, like, Eng- England is, is a funny country and you're from that country. <laughs> Haha. Is that the sort of thing? We're looking for I mean, here? that's about the the bar that he's established. Okay. Yes, I think when it comes to the discourse. So yeah, I feel like that's that's a good rejoinder from you to start this <laughs> one. But it is uh, me and Graham today, myself and Graham. Uh, got a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. It's theoretically going to be a fun uh, episode. Let's hope. The soccer news of late has been, I would say, pretty depressing, especially from an ownership standpoint. There are the Abramovich sanctions at Chelsea. There are Saudi flags at Newcastle. There's PSG being PSG. Threats of the reemergence of the Super League. There are reasons to not love the ownership structure the way clubs are run, uh, especially when you look at the massive debt across the board with a lot of the biggest clubs in Europe. But it's sort of easy to forget that there are actually some pretty well-run clubs out there who are able to do a lot of things pretty effectively. So on this episode, we're going to be trying to determine the best-run clubs in world football, which is quite an ambitious uh, topic. We've got, I think, five categories. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Five, indeed, that we think are important to a club's success. We've got some nominees for each category. At the end, we'll see who appears most commonly. Graham, I'm going to ask you to take us through the categories, but first I'm going to add the caveat that this is obviously, as I said, an ambitious thing to try to do in 40 minutes. Uh, We are not world global football experts by any stretch of the imagination, so we may miss some teams, we may uh, leave some people out that people think should be included, so we welcome your emails, and I look forward to this being sort of an evolving conversation, because I think it's worth praising the teams that are doing things well, as opposed to just sort of mourning how many clubs are not. So with that disclaimer out of the way, Graham, can you take us through our five categories? Yes, so our our five uh, criteria that that we've gone for to determine what is a well-run club, which I guess is important to set out before we throw names at people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to, <laughs> to set that criteria. So on-field success, um, pretty self-explanatory, financial stability, youth development, recruitment, which could be anything from uh, a philosophy of recruitment or consistency of success in signings mm-hmm. or the way that a team recruits players, and then fan engagement as well, which is always I always think is very important for a, a well-run club to be rooted in their community. Obviously, um, the team that I support is fan-owned. I think they could be slightly better in fan engagement. So being fan-owned isn't a guarantee that um, a club is is good at fan engagement. But those are our, our five criteria. And before um, I start throwing names out, 
Um, a lot of my picks, I would say, are classic TSS things can be two things picks. Mm-hmm. Um, there is there are some that may surprise people, and there are qualifications for those picks and caveats and things to take into consideration. Yeah. It is not always as easy as just this club is a well-run club and this run- club is a, a badly run club. Yeah. There are clubs that do good things and bad things all wrapped into one. So that is my disclaimer. <laughs> Uh, Graham, is there one of the criteria you would most like to start with? I think we have on-field success just listed first, but I'm happy to go elsewhere if you prefer. No, I think I think that's probably a good All place right. to start. All right. Uh, should we start with Bayern Munich or should we start with Man City? <laughs> Which one do you want to talk about first? So, so Bayern Munich were were yeah. uh, on my list. Uh, yeah. Certainly, they have won the last nine Bundesliga t- titles. Um, they have utterly dominated an entire era of of uh, German football even by their historical standards. Obviously, uh, Bayern Munich are the biggest club in Germany, but their their uh, current run of success is, is completely unprecedented. And, and their history in that time that I mentioned, the nine years they've won nine Bundesliga titles, they've also won the, the Champions League twice. Um, and I think the most impressive thing about Bayern Munich for me is the way that they view replenishment. Um, and this is one of those things, there's going to be a lot of overlap here, but um, this could also fall into recruitment. So they they never really face, for me, they never really face a rebuild because they just con- constantly replenish that squad every year. So poorly run clubs, uh, cough, cough, Manchester United, who seem to go through a rebuild every two, three years hey. where they look at their squad and they think, we need to start from scratch here. Bayern Munich never really have that. They, they, they sign one or two players every summer. One or two players are pushed out the door as well, um, as maybe they get a little bit older. And I think one of the best examples of this was, uh, Thiago Alcantara, who was such an important figure for them. But then he leaves for Liverpool and Leon Goretzka steps up as his replacement. Slightly different players, but he is, he's now playing alongside Joshua Kimmich in that central midfield. And Bayern Munich had already, had already signed him. They'd already signed him with a view to being the, one of the their, their next great midfielders they'd already signed Thiago's, Thiago's replacement before Thiago had had even left and they're just a they're just a machine Bayern Munich in terms of producing on the field results through recruitment good recruitment and um, good financial stability as well I might yeah. mention them a little bit later but it's um yeah it's, it's got to the point with Bayern Munich where it's it's difficult to imagine any other team dominating German football because as I say they have that natural advantage of being Germany's biggest club over a number of decades but when you when you factor in all the things that they they do well um, they're almost untouchable at the moment and certainly over the yeah. last 10 years they have been one of the the most successful if not the most, most successful team in European soccer. You will get no arguments from me, my friend. I had Bayern Munich top of my list. I had Ajax as as a team that has consistent on-field success. They've won five of the last uh, ten Eredivisie titles, consistently competing or competitive in the Champions League. Maybe not winning, uh, but for a club of their size, uh, they, I think, are regularly out-punching where they should be. Uh, so I had Ajax on that list. I would say both Man City and Liverpool probably deserve mm-hmm. mentions here uh, for the way they are able to stay competitive at the top of the Premier League, a league where there is an insane amount of money spent every single year. To stay on top or to stay near the top for both of those clubs, I think, is no small feat either. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would throw in another Premier League team as well. I, and this is where... What I said at the top of the show about caveats and qualifications, um, about being a, a well-run club, but uh, Chelsea 
if we're looking at the last 19 years. Now, obviously, yeah. the big caveats there are everything that's going on with Chelsea at the moment. Yeah. Roman Abramovich has spent around £2 billion on, on player transfers in 19 years. And of course, we all know now more than ever all the baggage that comes with him as an owner and the situation that has, has left Chelsea in at this very moment. I think there's bids, a deadline for bids is, to, is on, on Friday of this week. So we'll learn more about the history of that club soon. But in terms of on-field success, which is the category we're talking about right now, um, the level that Chelsea have reached over, over the last two decades has been incredible. In those 19 years under Bramovic, they've won 21 major titles and trophies. That includes five Premier League titles and two Champions Leagues. Um, and in many ways, Chelsea go against the grain of what should produce on-field success in that they have gone through uh, 13 managers in that time frame. And many people will have you believe that a sense of continuity throughout this whole conversation we're going to have, there's going to be a lot of talk of stability and yeah. and pretty much every category. We're talking about financial stability, uh, youth development, on-field success, stability, stability, stability. That's the key word. But Chelsea have, as I say, 13 managers in 19 years um, and they have broken the rules on this on surface level. Where they haven't broken the rules is in the front office structure of that club where they have uh, Marina, whose second name I can never pronounce. I always just call her Marina and Petr Cech uh, working there in that front office department as well. And those are the people who give Chelsea the the continuity. Um, And while money has undoubtedly been a factor in Chelsea being successful the last 20 years, We've seen with Manchester United, to mention them again, uh, that money is no guarantee of success and Chelsea have done a lot of good things with that money to bring that success. Graham, I would assume in terms of success, you would also have probably Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus on your list. It feels weird to include them, like Barcelona especially, uh, looking at if you Google most financially stable clubs, you will see Barcelona oftentimes listed as number one and we know that is very much not their financial yeah. position nowadays. So things can change. But I think because we hear so many stories about the finances of Barcelona or Real Madrid or even Juve, I think I was less inclined to put them near the top of this list. But if we're talking about just pure results, their consistency in winning silverware, I don't think you could ignore any of those three teams either. Yeah, I, I would de- I would have a ranking in, in, of those three. Um, at the bottom, mm-hmm. I'd probably have Juventus just because you do have the whole Calcio Poli scandal, which... Yeah, uh, means they aren't successful for a period, and now they've they've last season they don't win the title, and this season it's it's maybe less likely they'll win the title. Barcelona similar, you know, when I my formative years in football are the late nineties and early two thousands, and Barcelona at that time were not particularly good. You know, they were in the Champions League and so on, but they weren't winning the Champions League. They weren't winning the Spanish title either, so they did have a period um, as well where they weren't so good. Real Madrid are the ones for me who are top of those three. We had a discussion earlier this week actually where. I said, in my lifetime, Real Madrid have just always been good. They've just always been good. As In my adult lifetime, late 90s, they win Champions Leagues. My formative years, as I say, early 2000s, um, they're, they're, they win Champions League. That's the Galacticos era. You could say that, um, I think it's 2003-2004, they finished fourth. But that is a team that contains Figo and Zidane and Beckham and Roberto Carlos and Raul Gonzalez and all these amazing players. So even that team I don't think of as, as a bad team. And then you obviously have the Ronaldo and the and the Benzema era and it's just and it's just it's just kept going and going and going. So much like Chelsea, yes, of course they have an advantage in finances. Yes, they're one of the biggest clubs in the country. They're maybe always going to to stand a good chance of being successful, but they have also done a lot of good things to ensure that they maintain 
that level. And even this season, everyone's saying Real Madrid are not very good this season. They're not at the peak of their powers. Well, they're 10 points clear at the top of La Liga and they're, they're in the Champions League quarterfinals. And last season, they made the, the semifinals. So yeah, they are very good at, at staying at, at the top of European soccer. And I think I'm correct in saying the last time they failed to qualify for the Champions League was the 96-97 season. So yeah, I would say that's a, a pretty consistent run of form for Real Madrid. One other club I would, I would mention here, uh, strangely would be Lyon. And I think they will pop up a couple of different times on my list. It's odd to mention a team that hasn't won the title in a very long time. But I think a lot of that has to do with PSG coming in and all of the money behind PSG that's given them the ability to spend and thus win the title. But prior to PSG, I think Leon won seven titles in a row. We'll talk about them again when we get to youth development for sure and about the way they are able to sell on players. But Leon, prior to PSG, having a a consistent amount of success because of the ownership coming in and putting money behind them to build them to where they were. And they remain a team that that makes the Champions League or at least qualifies for the Champions League. Sometimes they go on good runs and have historically knocked out someone like Man City. So I think Lyon uh, also in the conversation for me, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. further back. Graham, any more teams that we should mention or should we move to our next category? Just uh, one more mention that maybe a slightly left field because we are, we are thinking of on-field success. So far, we thought of on-field success as, as trophies and titles. And of course, yes. that, that doesn't necessarily need to yeah. be the case. So yeah. one suggestion would be... Uh, who we spoke about on the, the Champions League review this week would be Villarreal. So I know Villarreal have the, the relegation season not so long ago, but the, the, the context that you need for that is that Villarreal are from a, a small town in Spain in terms of the, the, you often find the biggest club and the best clubs come from the biggest cities in a country. And Villarreal just that does not fit them at all. They're from a small town. They previously in the early 2000s, they, they made it to the Champions League, uh, I think, uh, quarterfinals or semifinals? Did they make it to the Champions League semifinals? The season that Arsenal, did Arsenal not beat them in the semifinals that in 2005, right. 2006? So they make it to the Champions League semifinals then. They stay competitive in, in La Liga. Yes, they have the relegation season, but they bounce back immediately. And then last season, win the Europa League, beat Manchester United in, in the final. So there is that. They do have that silverware. This season, they're in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. They consistently qualify for European football pretty much every season. So I think they qualify themselves for, for on-field success if we're looking at teams that don't necessarily always get their hands on the trophies. That's a great shout, Graham, because there are also many teams that punch above their weight that consistently stay in the Premier League or the Bundesliga when maybe they don't have the financial backing to do so, but find a way through, usually via smart management, smart youth direction, uh, and smart front office personnel. So yeah, a, g- a good idea that it doesn't always have to be silverware, but silverware definitely helps. Uh, Graham, let's keep it moving then. Let's talk about financial stability. Another one that can sort of range based on what numbers you're seeing or what when the reports are coming through, but who are some clubs that you think of as being particularly financially stable? So um, being a Scot, I have to vouch for Celtic when we're talking okay. about financial stability. They don't always get everything right and fans get frustrated at the, the club selling important players and not and then not replacing them. But Celtic, that's a big part of Celtic's business model and that business model has allowed them, I know they don't win the title last season, but they're back at the top of the Scottish Premiership this season. And before that, they'd won nine titles in a row. So generally speaking, that business model has allowed them to stay at the top of Scottish football for a long, long time. And it's underlined by them posting a, a last year a profit of £27 million. 
Um, for context, Celtic, Celtic Park was closed due to COVID for much of the year. Celtic don't qualify for the Champions League. They don't go on a meaningful European run. Um, for further context, Rangers, who did win the title last season, they lost almost the same amount, twenty-three million pounds last season. So it's it's pretty much a a, a mirror image of the two clubs in terms of their financial uh, stability. And obviously, Rangers have we all know about the financial troubles that they've had had, had as a club in recent times. And Celtic have just made a very good industry of primarily the thing that m- makes them profitable as a club um, is their, their their transfer market activity. So. They, they've got a good scouting network. They sign underappreciated players and then move them on for, for good money. So players that they've done that with, Odson Edward, Christopher Ayer, Virgil van Dijk, Stuart Armstrong at Southampton now, Kieran Tierney, Jeremy Frim- Frimpong, who's at Bayer Leverkusen and has been linked with uh, Bayern Munich. I think Celtic do, uh, have a, have a set, a, a sell-on clause that they'll get an amount if he goes to Bayern Munich. Uh, Moussa Dembele at Leon Fraser Foster going back a little bit further to, to Southampton. Victor Wanyama. They are very, very good at this. And if you're looking for a small market club um, like Celtic, who are who use the transfer market not just to build a good team, but to actually as as actually part of their business model, then they're they're one of the best examples out there. So Graham would have Celtic. I take no issue with that. It is a confusing category, though, because when we look at financial stability, like I think uh, as recently as a couple of months ago, Chelsea were listed as a club that could weather yeah. the pandemic, could handle everything. But a lot of that is because they had Roman Abramovich as a backer who can cover those debts. But when you look at the actual amount of debt they have, I think they're what, like $1.5 in debt to Roman Abramovich. So it's a confusing situation where you will have teams that theoretically have stability because they have so much money behind them. But in a certain way, I don't really count that in terms of this conversation, because I think if you just have a if you're a trust fund kid, I wouldn't say that's financially stable because you have all the money, even if you are financially stable, because it means you're not necessarily doing the things that need to be done to ensure that you continue to be financially stable. But it should be noted that there are many teams that maybe could fall into this category because they have that backing. Uh, Graham, other ones who you would say maybe are outside of that style of management or ownership? So there are only two clubs in the Premier League right now that are debt-free that I could find. So one of them is one of those trust fund kids that you're referencing. That's Newcastle United, who had £111 million of debt owed to Mike Ashley wiped out when the the Saudi Arabian-backed takeover was completed last year. The other one is uh, Aston Villa. Uh, Now, this is down to a couple of factors. One is, and this is very simplistic, but as far as I can see, Aston Villa continue to spend within their means as a club. Yes, they have signed some big players recently. Luca Dina and, and Philip Coutinho is surely on some pretty big wages. He's only on loan, of course. But Villa would argue that they can organically do that due to their size. They have been in the Champions Championship recently, but Aston Villa have a huge fan base. They also have a pretty large stadium in, in the context of the Premier League, so their gate receipts are, are pretty high as well. Um, and... They, they, they also have the, that sweet Premier League broadcast revenue, which gives everyone an advantage in that division. They, they did have some operating losses over the COVID period, which I, I don't know whether, I, I don't know whether that is fair to judge or not, because obviously loads of clubs had that and they had their stadiums closed and it was a very unique time. Um, but that was actually wiped out by shareholder equity and, and the shareholders, 
Um, this is where it's a great area because you could say the shareholders have, have just wiped out that debt and maybe they are a trust fund, trust fund kid as well. But for, from everything I could read about Aston Villa, it seems like it's a, it's a guiding principle of theirs from their shareholders to keep the, the club debt free. And so I think that that probably deserves a mention, even though Aston Villa do have millionaire owners and they do have millionaire shareholders um, and they have been dug out a little bit in COVID times. They don't have an Abu Dhabi. They don't have uh, Saudi Arabia or a Roman Abramovich. They're not quite at that level. And the fact that they are debt free with Newcastle as the only other team in the league, I think probably de- deserves a mention. Yeah, I think it's kind of difficult to talk about any team in some of the the bigger competitions and assume that they don't have the the millionaire backers behind them. But I think when those backers are able to completely wipe off, say, 500 million on a go, I think that's maybe the differentiator for me. Another team that I find slightly confusing when it comes to financial stability, Graham, I'm hoping you have something to say about AC Milan, because Milan is one that is like always seems to be struggling or has to make sales or can't afford to make this signing or has to move this player on. But I believe in terms of the teams that were involved in the Super League conversations, they had near the bottom in terms of debt. Like maybe Chelsea had less than them, but we've already talked about why that's a little bit of an outlier. So Milan is one that seems to have maybe tried to stabilize things and and correct some of the massive spending that we saw previously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that has been... uh a bit of a legacy of uh, Ivan Gazidis going into to, to AC Milan as the, um, I'm not actually sure of his official title, is he chairman or CEO? But he's certainly the, the, the kind of chief of, of that club, obviously had been at Arsenal previously. And similar to what he did at Arsenal, he um, a big part of what he's done at AC Milan has been imposed a, a wage structure, a very strict wage structure that has kept things um, manageable for AC Milan. and And that has not been especially popular with a lot of the a lot of the fans uh Gigi Donnarumma who leaves AC Milan at the end of last season he leaves that club because he feels he can't get his market value and in terms of his salary he goes to PSG because obviously they are able and willing to give him that that market value it will happen again this summer it'll happen with Frank Frank Kessie who is um coming to the end of his contract contract talks with AC Milan have have stalled because they um they just aren't willing to to meet his his wage demands and he'll probably leave for for free. So it is it is a gamble because obviously those players have have big value and you could maybe give them big contracts and then sell them on for big money, but that kind of underlines how um committed to this new structure and this new model that AC Milan are uh, and have been over the last few years. Any other uh contenders that you would put on that list for financial stability, Graham? I'm going to name one of the one of the trust fund kids, maybe yeah. one of the biggest ones because they are it's very confusing and there's a lot of caveats with this one. So it's, I'm talking about Manchester City, right? Yeah. So everyone knows City are owned by Sheikh Mansour, a member of the, a member of the royal family of Dubai, Abu Dhabi, sorry, uh, not Dubai. They are different things. The, the, the wealth has, uh, that, that, that their owners has, has, a, has been a primary factor and then becoming the force that they are today. They spent over a billion pounds in player transfers to the, since 2008. However, Man City have also built up their revenues as a club and a brand to the point that I think it should probably be mentioned. Last season, City recorded record revenue of £570 million. That was a huge increase of 19% on the season before, despite COVID and all the challenges that that, that posed. It was the, also the first time that Man City's revenue had exceeded that of Manchester United's to the point that they it's the biggest revenue stream in the Premier League now. Now, 
this is where the qualification comes in with this. There's a lot of debate over how City have have achieved this. UEFA have openly uh, have been openly skeptical about the value of some of those sponsorship deals that they have struck and some of the sponsors' links to Abu Dhabi. Um, but if we're to take it on face value, Man City, despite their the, the wealth of their backers, have turned themselves into a, a bit of a revenue giant in soccer since since the takeover and and. Um, yeah, that's that's been charted in that landmark moment of of, of passing hmm. Manchester United. Everyone talks about Manchester United being this commercial machine making yeah. all this money. Well, last season City actually had higher revenue than them, so I guess I guess that's notable. Yay! Thanks, Graham, for bumming me out even more. <laughs> uh, the other sort of weird one, as long as we're talking about the kind of strangeness of the finances, would be the entire Red Bull organization because I do think right. those teams. Like, I think every now and then, I think Salzburg lost, like, a million or two million recently. But for the most part, those organizations all seem to be pretty good about keeping things uh, financially sound, about selling on players when they need to, and and sort of even promoting from within, as we've seen many times, both from managerial side and from a playing standpoint. But I, I think if we're looking at the kind of the club grouping model that like there's city football group then there's the red bull group there's a few other ones in there to a lesser degree but i think red bull is a good model for how you can go about doing that but again we're talking about an organization that has a lot of money behind them and then there's the franchising and everything else that goes into it that makes them sort of an outlier sort of a strange one to discuss yeah absolutely and i I think um red bull certainly in my list they're probably going to come up in some of the other categories as as well they are a very interesting case study when it comes to to ownership and and soccer teams and and actually i think the red bull and city football group are are probably um whether we like it or not because red bull have a lot of they they have a lot of critics in German soccer in particular. Whether we like it or not, Red Bull and City Football Group have, have probably shown us a bit of the future in terms of how clubs are going to be run in years to come. I'm going to take a moment to ruminate on that one and maybe cry a little bit. Then we'll be back with our final three categories. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like having a first aid kit, but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine. But what if you suddenly get into a horrible accident and there's nothing in your first aid kit to help you stop the bleeding? Uh, In Con Air, I believe he needed a first aid kit for a syringe, and that first aid kit had chicken feet. Nicholas Cage wasn't happy when that happened. You wouldn't be either. So don't let your first aid kit have chicken feed in it. Don't let your connection be unsecure. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, be it at a cafe, a hotel, an airport, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. And the truth is it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack somebody. And your data is valuable and vulnerable, so you need to make sure it is secure. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers cannot steal your sensitive data. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. And nobody has a billion years to wait around. That just won't work. So that's why ExpressVPN is great. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash soccer. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash soccer. And you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash soccer. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's show. 
Welcome back to Soccer 101. Thanks for sticking with us. We've talked financial stability. We've talked on-field success. Graham, let's talk youth development. And I think, again, we're going to see some overlap and some new entries to this list. And I'm going to start us off by mentioning a team I mentioned previously, Olympic Lyonnais, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Lyon. Uh, that is a team that maybe flies under the radar when it comes to youth development. I'm just going to run you through some names real quick, Graham. We've got Kareem Benzema. We've got Hatem Ben Arfa. We've got Loic Remy. We have got Alex. Alexander Lacazette, uh, Nabil Fakir. Uh, those are just players, Anthony Martial, uh, Diakabi. They've sold some very good players. And then you look at their first team, uh, Hussam Awa came through their academy, and Maxence Kakare came through their academy. They do one heck of a job of bringing through young players and then backing them to both be functional first-team players, but also to be sold on at some point for a lot of money, and a lot of that has to do with scouting the local area, but scouting uh, France as a whole. They've got scouts all over the place, so they will even discover, like, Hatem Benarfa, I think, was found playing in the Paris suburbs. So they've got the giant yeah. network across France and elsewhere, and I think have done a very good job of bringing through French talent. And when you see the the players that have come through Lyon and how much of a a, a talent hotbed France is for young players, you realize the the opportunity that PSG are missing yep. with the number of young players. Because that, that's the strange thing about PSG. Sorry to, to move it on slightly, but no, we're no, talking no. about youth development in France. PSG have a very good youth academy and, and they're very good at youth development. Where they're not good is giving opportunities to those young players. So yep. uh, most recently, Christopher Nkuku, who I've seen mentioned as a 80 million euro player, has had an amazing season for for uh, RB Leipzig. I think this week had his, has got his first France call up. He was a PSG player. Was he um, really? Didn't get the op- didn't get the opportunity at PSG, and then wow. goes to to RB Leipzig. Odson Edward, uh, who's now at Crystal yeah. Palace, and I think he's got one big move in him, uh, one more big move in his career. I think he can go up another step. He's a he's a youth player at PSG. Doesn't get the opportunity at PSG. Goes to Celtic. Makes his name there. And I think that's the difference between Leon and, and PSG is. Leon, they give the opportunities to their young player, and that's probably part of their their sales pitch to get these players over to Leon. Are you going to get the opportunities at PSG? Are you going to get the opportunities even at, at Marseille? Probably you're going to get more opportunities at, at P- than at uh, PSG. But I wouldn't say Marseille are particularly brilliant at youth development either, or certainly giving youth a chance. And Leon are are very good at that. And I think it's been really interesting, Leon. You referenced it earlier in the pod, Taylor how they had that shift from being the dominant force in French football where they did spend a little bit of money. They won title after title and then PSG come along and almost overnight, Leon just went, okay, we're going to be the youth development guys and we're just going to make our own players and our own talent and not really spend all that much money. And they're they're very, very effective at it. <laughs> uh, any other... Well, let's stay in France for a moment because I, I would like to mention uh, Stade René at this point, another one who I think have done a very good job of scouting France and I think regularly are making sales that keep them in the not red but green. Uh, they are, they stay uh, financially profitable, but they've brought through players like Usman Dembele, Eduardo Camavinga, Ismail Assar, mm-hmm. uh, Edward Mendy, Rafinha, to name just a few more recently. And those are players that are coming through the academy, developing, playing, and then being sold on for lots and lots of money. Yeah, Graham, uh, France. Lots of talent in France, it turns out. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's something PSG should look into. Maybe uh, just maybe. Maybe just point. maybe. <laughs> um, where else should we look, Graham? 
Yeah, so I'm assuming you maybe have Ajax somewhere on uh, yeah, your list? Yeah, that would be correct. That would be correct. Yeah, so I think famously Ajax are one of the, the best and most prolific producers of, of young players in soccer. I'm going to do what you did with Leon, run you through some names that Ajax have produced over the years. So Donny van der Beek, Sven Botman, Johan Cruyff, you might have heard of him, uh, quite, a, quite a good player in his day. Edgar David, Sergino Des, might have also heard of him, Anwar El Ghazi, Nigel de Jong, the two Cliverts, Patrick and his son Justin Clivert, uh, Matthias de Ligt, Daniel Malin, Clarence Seedorf, Wesley Snyder. It's actually a joke, to be honest, how many yeah. players that they have produced. Raphael van der Vaart, uh, Joe Veltman, and then the current team, Daley Blind, Ryan Gravenberch, um, uh, Mazrawi, Juran uh, Timber, and then even players that they they don't that don't come through the academy. They they are very good at giving a platform to young players as well. So so Anthony is one we'd mention. Obviously, he doesn't come through the the academy as a as a Brazilian, but he's he's someone who fits into that philosophy that Ajax have of giving youth a chance. And and the the importance of youth development is woven into the fabric of of that club. When you have a meal in hospitality. At Ajax, you sit in a restaurant at the Johan Cruyff Stadium or the uh, or the arena, as it's called, and you look out over the the countless training pitches that they have around that ar- ar- arena, and it's just one after one after one um, of of training pitches. Yeah, and I think that just said I, I like that as a symbol of how Dortmund have that as well. Who maybe would make this list for youth development, but I, I like that symbol of having the stadium at the center. Of, of the youth facilities, City have it as well, and they're, they're also producing a lot of good young players now. And Ajax players, are, they're also expected to, to play in a very distinct way. I think that's one of the most successful things that Ajax do in youth development is throughout the youth teams, they are expected to be tactically flexible. They're expected to be um, technically able on the ball, intelligent players. And so by the time they get to the first team, it's not a case of them being dropped into a side and they've never played this way before. They've never played these tactics before. They're used to it. And that's probably why you get so many young players at Ajax who just immediately hit the ground running and all of a sudden they're superstars in that team is because there is that joined up thinking throughout the youth ranks that then leads into the first team. I think that that is a commonality across the most successful academies in my mind is that you have lots of clubs that have academies. You have a slightly smaller percentage of those clubs that have academies that are effective or do good work. And then you have an even smaller percentage that are just so consistently training players to play a certain style that is then reflected in that senior team. Ajax would be a great example of that. Uh, La Masia at Barcelona, obviously one of those as well, where players are coming through being steeped in the tradition of how to play, the structure, the style, the approach, the philosophy, all of those things. If you're schooled in it from an early age, you're going to come through ready to function, as you said with Ajax, and I think the same goes for Barcelona. I don't even know if we need to spend a ton of time talking about Barca. Just know that so many huge names, and especially the huge names from that back-to-back-to-back Champions League winning team. They didn't win three Champions Leagues, did they? It was just the triple treble under Pep, and then I think the treble under Luis Enrique as well. So many of that squad coming through the academy, I would say, is not a coincidence. No, absolutely not. And, and Barcelona are maybe the the biggest and best example of, of youth development being woven into the fabric, to use that term again, of, of an elite level club. And that, that recently, when we've seen Barcelona lose their way, has been one of the, the, the biggest talking points, the thing that has upset fans so much in the days of 
uh, of Bartomeu and Ronald Koeman as, as the coach. Although Koeman actually did bring through quite a number of players, but maybe before him, uh, Setien and, and Ernesto Valverde towards the end of his time, that, that the, the pathway between La Masia, um, which is the famed name for the, the youth academy, refers to the house at Barcelona where they, they all used to stay. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think they have rather more modern surroundings now at the, the Barcelona Academy, but it's still called La Masia. And um, that, that pathway was disrupted for a number of years. But I think it speaks volumes to just how good that academy is, how solid that groundwork that Barcelona have, that when Xavi comes in and Laporta comes back as president and they decide, right, all of a sudden we're going to we're going to be, uh, we're going to reestablish that pathway again. And it's like the tap has been turned on again at Barcelona. You know, they have Ansu Fati, Pedri, uh, Nico Gonzalez, Gavi, uh, Ronald Araujo, who I know is a Uruguayan, but he's still come through that, that, that system. And the, the, even players like Abdi, who played a number of games and has kind of faded a little way, a, a little bit away, he, he still came through and looked very comfortable in those surroundings. So yeah, Barcelona absolutely are one of the, the best examples of, of a club that prioritizes youth development. Uh, let's see here, Graham. So we've talked Spain, we've talked France. I should mention one more in France uh, that just kind of flies under the radar, but uh, Le Havre, uh, my French is not great. If you want to go with the wires pronunciation, it's Lee Harvey. Uh, that is definitely not what it is. But just <laughs> a quick note on them, just because you look at some of the names that have come through. Benjamin Mendy, we don't need to talk about him. Uh, but then from there, uh, Las Diara, Riyad Mahrez, Steve Mandanda, Paul Pogba, Dimitri Payet, for a club that is consistently in Ligue 2, uh, to have those names come through, to be able to develop that talent, spot that talent, and uh, culture it accordingly, I would, I would would add them to my list and I would include we've gone very European heavy and I think mm-hmm. that's partially because there's a lot of familiarity with Europe for you and me but also because when I think of say South America or even the United States it's teams that do a good job of youth development but I think when there is such an eye towards selling them on it, I don't know why I maybe maybe it is just like I don't know arrogance but I don't necessarily put them in the same category because a club like Santos who could have this incredibly dominant team but kind of sells players on so quickly I guess it's worth noting that that academy is very good for developing talent in these flair star players uh Danilo Alexandro as well on that list but at the same time it doesn't necessarily feel to me and again i might be speaking from a position of ignorance as as though the goal is to develop this team that wins a bunch of stuff in brazil and maybe we sell on a player here and there it feels much more rooted in develop a player to sell them to then reinvest and keep selling and ideally win along the way but selling seems to be the priority i would put fc dallas a little bit in that category with how many players they have brought through developed into first team players given a half season, given a full season, and then sold on really quickly. They haven't won the silverware that would usually go with that level of development, but they have kept that talent pipeline moving. Yeah, I think FC Dallas, if we're looking to to MLS, I think with MLS, uh, a factor is just that until recently, the whole academy and youth development system in American soccer mm-hmm. wasn't under uh, under the control of, of the club. So we've, we don't have really the the track record when the, the clubs that we've named named their Ajax, Leon, Barcelona, we're talking decades and decades yeah. of proof and yeah, evidence yeah, yeah. of Good of call. this of this club uh, producing players. And FC Dallas are doing a great job right now. And um, I, to use the term for the for a third time, woven into the fabric of a club, I think that is that is true of FC Dallas. That youth development is very much at the forefront of what they do and what they stand for. But they just they just don't have that track record yet to prove that it really is 
solid groundwork that they've, they've put in put in place that will last decades and not just a few years. Uh, I do want to move us on to uh, our remaining criteria. I would ask, Graham, do you have either or both of Real Sociedad or Athletic Bilbao on this list? So Athletic Club made my initial list and then I, and then I decided to, um, there was a lot of Spanish stuff in, in mind, so I decided <laughs> to, to shake it up a little bit. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take the mic on, on the two Basque uh, clubs because they obviously deserve a mention. So it's, it's Bilbao that have the Basque only policy right and then yes. so, uh, Real Sociedad have the like Basque mostly policy yeah exactly yeah yeah Basque mostly unless there's this this kid from Madrid who's really good and we want to sign In which we'll case. Have him for a couple of years <laughs> yeah but I, I think both of those clubs it, it's similar to Chivas de Guadalajara uh but on I would say a larger scale that to only go or primarily go for Basque talent that is a very, it's like the, what, the population of whales, I think, is the equivalent. So you're, like, recruiting from this incredibly small pool of players, and for both of them to, it's not just one club that's doing that, it's two clubs that are that are trying to dip into that pool and doing so consistently on a in a successful way. But it also means, because that policy is known, they will sell their players on, but it means... There's not really much of a motivation because you can't just go out and sign a like-for-like replacement or a big name from somewhere else to fill that hole. You've got to sign them from a very specific region or a very specific background. And so I think it's interesting that I I don't think of either of them as necessarily selling clubs, even though they will sell their players. I think of it more as developing first-team players, and if they sell them on, so be it. But that they develop those players to come through the academy to keep them in La Liga and consistently competitive in La Liga is no small feat in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right to mention the the difference in maybe focus that that particularly Athletic Club have to some of the other clubs that we mentioned, Leon and even Ajax. And um, I know I mentioned them, the financial stability section, but Celtic, their business yep. model of, of developing players and selling them on. A- Athletic Club in particular don't really have that. There, there are players who have been at that club who came through and have who could have got a big move away from that club. Iker Munayin is maybe one of the, the best examples. Um, and yet he's he's probably going to spend his, his whole career at, at, at that club. So they very much develop players for the first team. I was reading recently one of the... I found this really interesting. One of maybe one of the reasons that the Basque clubs are so good at getting the best players from their region is there's actually the, the Basque government is actively um, they they make sure that across Spain you will get uh, uh, Barcelona residency academies and Real Madrid academies, and there are none of those in in the Basque country because the Basque government has has made sure that they're not going to get planning permission for those for those academies and that just means that the players that the Basque country that that region produces um they're going to the clubs in that in in that region and it's and it's not just uh Sociedad and uh, Real Sociedad and Athletic Club either you know you know you've got Ibar in that region who were in La Liga until pretty recently so that I, th- I found that very interesting that there is almost like a um, even though they're rivals, Real Sociedad and Athletic Club and the other Basque clubs as well, the, it, there's almost a recognition that they need to look after their own and, and that extends to uh, kind of governmental level. 
Uh, I was surprised, Graham, to see a lot of like Spanish clubs listed in in the lists of the best run uh, youth academies or development academies. Uh, same thing with France. Obviously, a few English clubs in there. Less so German clubs. Uh, Dortmund seems to be the biggest one when it comes to mm. developing players and selling them on. Bayern Munich obviously have done the same and have many, many academy players in their ranks. And I think Germany on the whole does maybe just consistently a good enough job that they all sort of deserve mentioning. I don't know, am I yeah. being too generous? But it, it just feels like you don't have that one club that is only known for selling on. And I'm assuming, again, maybe incorrectly, that a lot of that has to do with 50 plus one, clubs not really living beyond their means. And so there is this emphasis on bringing through young players such that it's not really that big of an outlier and no team really stands out for that being their identity, so to speak. Yeah, I think I do think that's fair about, about German soccer, and and, and it's a, it's a weird one because if you look at Germany as a whole, you would say, in terms of their national team and just their their national identity as a soccer nation, they are very mm. good at, at youth development. We mentioned uh, you mentioned their Dortmund, and I mentioned them previously about how the the stadium is at the centre of the, of the youth pitches, and I do think Dortmund are maybe the the best example of of a club that uh, puts youth development at the forefront of what they do. But even then, I mean. I'm probably putting Dortmund in the recruitment category rather yep. than youth development. You look at the players who have come through that club. Um, Erling Haaland, obviously they sign him from Red Bull Salzburg. Gio Reyna, obviously he comes through the, 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 the youth ranks, but as, as, mm-hmm. as an American, um, you know, not, as not a, a German native. Um, a number of players that, uh, that Dortmund have given a platform to, but didn't necessarily produce through their own youth academy. And I, I do just wonder whether that is down to the competition across German, Germany. If you look geographically at where those clubs are situated, you know, Dortmund have about something like eight Bundesliga clubs within a, you know, a 20 to 30 kilometer radius around them. And so the, it's very difficult for one club to make themselves um, the the kind of bastion of youth development just because they're all competing for the for the same players and I I wonder if that's a factor. Graham, I think you've done a very good job of moving us into the recruitment category because I think you're absolutely right. That is probably where Dortmund deserve to be. I just felt weird not talking about German clubs when it comes to youth development, but I think you've drawn the line pretty effectively there that Dortmund are a team that can obviously bring through young players, but also do a very good job of identifying talent at a young age, be it very young in Gio Reyna's case, or somebody like uh, Shinji Kagawa, who I think they bring over when he's 20 or 21. Very young, not like a teenager or anything like that, not coming through the academy, but they're still identifying a talent. They bring him from Japan. They sell him on for a lot of money. I'd say Erling Holland will be in that category. You spend some money on him certainly to bring him in, but you would assume they will be making, I think the release clause is 75 million euros. I would guess they're going to make exactly that amount. And that happens routinely with them, that they are able to make money from those uh, uh, sales such that they don't have to sell players if they don't want to, and they will stand on that principle, let the contract wind down, let the player move on a free because they don't want to be pushed around uh, because they don't have to be. And so I think their recruitment has put them in that strong of a position. I was looking at uh, transfer market for a moment, and I was surprised to see that when you're just looking at income from sales, I believe Dortmund since 2017 has the third largest income. It's right around $700 million uh, over the course of those seasons. The only two clubs ahead of them would be... I doubt you would be able to guess number two, Graham, but number one is Barcelona with over 800 million in sales. I would say some of that 
is because they've been forced to sell some players recently. Monaco would be the other one that has wow, the okay. largest <laughs> amount of uh, income with $729 million over the course of that time period. But Juve, Chelsea, Real Madrid, Atleti, uh, uh, Benfica, Inter Milan, and then Olympic Lyon rounding out your top 10. But that is just on expenditure when it comes to, uh, I think, net uh, expenditure in terms of se- like uh, sales versus purchases. Benfica, number one on the list. Uh, Dortmund falls to fifth. They've only made two hundred million instead of that seven hundred million I mentioned previously. Right. So you you've gone for Benfica, and that's very interesting because I also went to Portugal for recruitment, mm-hmm. and you have done a you've done it very forensically with a lot of numbers, <laughs> and I I maybe didn't go that that's far in, in determining. But I I went for Porto, and I, on my notes I also said. Benfica and Sporting Lisbon, um, or yep. Sporting Club de Portugal. I know their fans get a little bit annoyed when people say Sporting Lisbon. Um, they could also get a mention from, from Portugal because all three clubs are very good at scouting and recruitment and in particular scouting and recruiting from South America. So I went with Porto and they, they offer themselves as a stepping stone for yep. young uh, young players from South America who want to make it big in Europe and have the talent to do so. And then I looked through some of the players who have passed through Porto in recent years. So you've got Luis Diaz, who's obviously just gone to Liverpool. Porto signed him from a club in Colombia for £6 million. They then sell him to Liverpool for £40 million. Eder Militao. So they sign him from Sao Paulo in Brazil for £6 million. They sell him to Real Madrid for £45 million. Hector Herrera, they sign him from uh, Pachuca, yeah. obviously a, a Mexican player, not necessarily a South American player, but same idea. He's he's slightly different because they don't get the big fee for him, but he's a key number for that, te- a key figure for that team for a number of seasons. And then they sell him to Atletico Madrid. Jackson Martinez, sign him from a team in Colombia for eight million, sold to Atletico Madrid for thirty-one million pounds. James Rodriguez, signed from Banfield for six million pounds, sold to Monaco for forty million pounds. So you're seeing a pattern here of yep. Them of Porto going to South America, getting the best young players in South America ahead of the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid, all those clubs, because they can say to these players, look, you're going to get first team football here. You're going to be, you're going to win some titles, at least challenge for some titles. You're going to play in the Champions League and you're going to get that big money move to a team. And by that stage, you're going to play first team football for that team. So this is a, this is a better pathway for you. Mm. And, and I think a, a lot of the Portuguese teams, think that way and are very good at executing that sort of model two things one i totally agree with you and we talked uh years ago about how that is such a useful thing that clubs can do is establish a recruitment pipeline with a specific country or region and we talked a lot about uh uh, portuguese clubs looking to south america obviously the brazil connection is pretty strong but a random one was like psv i think had a really strong scouting network in mexico and so you would see the kind of top tier players in liga mekis moving to psv or moving to the air divisie but oftentimes it was psv and then being sold on for more money and i think teams that are able to kind of find those pipelines and create that familiarity if you're a player who's looking for to make that jump and your buddy who played for the same club just moved to this team and they have all the people in place to make that an an easy process you're probably going to follow suit and so those pipelines just become so useful such that to the second point, Graham, when you look at basically positive net spend, when you remove the expenditures, because Barcelona goes from number one to off the list when it comes to how much money they've spent, Benfica is top of the list, but you have Porto in sixth, Sporting in eighth. So 
three of the top eight spots when it comes to net spend yeah. uh, taken up by Portuguese clubs. Uh, and then some other names that you would expect to be on there are very much there. Ajax is second, Olympic Lyon third. Uh, surprisingly, Salzburg fourth, Dortmund fifth. So uh, good business from all of those clubs. And anytime, yeah, you have those teams that are able to kind of bring through the young player for a very small amount of money, and then suddenly they're selling them for 50, 70, 80, 100 million. I would say that's pretty good business, Graham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not bad at all. And another club that, um, unfortunately, not recently for things that are out, outside of their control, but another club when you're talking about a pipeline to a specific country, another club that did that very well was uh, Shakhtar Donetsk, yes, obviously, yes. In, in Ukraine, yes. where they signed so many promising young Brazilians and they, they, you know, they're in the Champions League and they're winning titles and they're a dominant force in Ukrainian football. And it's basically all on the back of these amazing Brazilians who a number of them, they, they sell on for big money. I think William comes through, um, through Shakhtar Donetsk. Uh, does, does Douglas Costa come through Shakhtar Donetsk as, as well? There's a Fred, number, a Fred number of Brazilians. Did, I believe. Fred, yep, there's another one. Um, there's so yeah. many players who, who, who come through Shakhtar Donetsk from, from Brazil. And, and yeah, they made a bit of an industry of, of, of that. And it obviously, given what's happened in that country, and particularly in the Donbass region, it's, it's a yeah. shame that that hasn't been allowed to continue. Uh, agreed. Uh, final two clubs that I just wanted to mention, because uh, we haven't talked much about Italy uh, here. I think I tend to think of Atalanta as a team that does a really good job, both with youth development, I should have mentioned them earlier, but then also when they do sign players, I, I tend to kind of believe in them that they're getting those signings right. And oftentimes we see them immediately incorporated into the first team. And I think that connects to uh, uh, Gasper. Is it Gasparini? I always make this mistake and want to say it's him. Okay, yes, thank you. Yes, Jim thank you. I always Gasparini, get nervous yes. for a moment when there's when I haven't talked about them in a while. Uh, I think his kind of longevity of his career there allows for that stability. I think that is a thing that you always see as teams that have stable managers or stable uh, academies tend to produce stable teams. Sassuolo would be the other one that I don't know as yeah. much about, but they seem like they have done their work, have kind of grown this small club into a consistent Serie A club that consistently moves on talents and then replaces them with good enough players that they can then develop into very good players that they then sell on for a lot of money. Uh, Domenico Berardi and Manuel Locatelli would be in those categories for me. Yeah, and I really like Sassuolo because um, they're very entertaining to watch. They do a lot of, of all the things you said. They're good youth development, good recruitment. And in a weird way, I, I wonder how much they curse the existence of Atalanta because in, in so many ways, they're almost like another Atalanta. And if Atalanta weren't around or weren't doing as well as they have been these last few years, maybe everyone's talking about Sassuolo and what and what they're doing, but they kind of fly on fly under the radar and, and you don't really get all that many people talking about them. But recently, I've I've really enjoyed watching them. They have a a, a very kind of uh, entertaining team, and, and that that front that front four that I've spoken about on the pod before of uh, Berardi and Raspadori and Triori and Skakamakas. Like mm. I, I very much enjoy watching them, and they haven't really spent big. And as I say, it's all kind of come through good recruitment and good uh, scouting. And then the final one, uh, just because we, I should, I feel obligated to mention an MLS team here. I think if you're going to talk about an MLS team that consistently gets their signings right, I would point to Seattle, who 
I struggle to think of a time that they've whiffed on a signing. I'm sure Portland fans will happily remind me of a couple, but I think <laughs> of their DPs. I feel like they've gotten all those right. I think the way they're able to recruit and bring in, say, Albert Rusnak this season. Uh, but I think Raul Ruiz Diaz, when he's brought in, that felt immediately like, oh, that is going to maybe win them a title here or there because he is that good. Nico Ladero has obviously proven himself to be a very important part of that team. I think they get a lot of their international signings right. I think they do a good job of domestic recruiting as well. So Seattle, if we're looking for an MLS team, is one that I think of as if they're bringing somebody in, chances are that player I think is going to hit, or at least I have confidence that they will. Graham, any other teams before we get to our final category? Yeah, I have to I have to make one mention from a, a about a team in, in Spain. Um, so I think if we're looking to continental Europe for an example of a club that has nailed recruitment over the last 10 years ago, I have to mention Sevilla mm. um, and obviously mention their legendary sporting director Monchi he's he's had such an influence on that club that the fans sing his name and uh, I know Darren Fletcher got booked for Manchester United the other night but I'm, I'm not sure there's a technical director or a director of football with the public stature of of, of Monchi nope. he's very much at the top of of his game and um, yeah to, to con- continue a common theme we've said about the uh, team's selling players on I think Sevilla accept that they're going to have to to sell on players they've sold on uh, Clement Longley with some Ben Yedder Brian Hill recently Vitolo Kevin Gamero going back a few years Carlos Baca Rakitic that's going back a number of years now and I know he's back at Sevilla now but he he goes to Barcelona obviously for a big fee and um, yet Sevilla still managed to stay competitive and they see those fees that they get for those players as an opportunity to reinvest and move the team on a little bit and they've won six Europa League titles since 2005 they continue to qualify for the Champions League through La Liga the last step is a title challenge and there's a sense that that might not be that far away under Lopetegui they're second in, in the La Liga table Right now, that would be the thing that really takes Sevilla to, to the next level and, and you would have to say is, is almost kind of a legendary process from, from Monchi. I already think he's there, to be honest, but you would really look at that as one of the, the most extraordinary success stories in, in European soccer if they were to win a title. But yeah, they're, they're very good at recruitment, Sevilla. They, they, find, they find underappreciated players who maybe have been cast aside by big clubs. I'm thinking of Munir yep. El Haddadi, who obviously plays for Barcelona, is deemed as not good for Barcelona and is now a key figure for Sevilla is doing very well and that that is kind of a model for them as they they go and look for the players who have maybe been cast aside by the bigger clubs and and give them a platform. And I guess before we move on, I'm going to say this through literally gritted teeth. Liverpool (laughs) also do a pretty good job with their recruitment. (sighs) As much as it pains me, I feel like when they identify a talent they bring them in regardless of the money Virgil van Dijk they will they will pay the fee even if it takes a little bit longer than they wanted but Luis Diaz I think they they recognize oh we might lose him let's get him right now he comes in and and kind of hits the ground running Uh, Diogo Jota is one that I thought maybe wouldn't work out so well and instead here he is being a very important player for them Uh, Mohamed Salah had previous time with Chelsea and in Italy and yet he comes in and now he is this next level player Sadio Mane I would put in that category as well so I think Liverpool tends to get their recruitment right as well absolutely and if I'm going to really rub salt into the wounds here Taylor I would say Liverpool are very good at kind of what Manchester United used to be very good at whereas they they don't sign Manchester United in the Ferguson days obviously were a superstar team but they they very rarely went out and got a a ready-made superstar there was a couple times they did it they went out and got Rio Ferdinand they went out and got Robin Van Persie 
But um, most of the time it was identifying that player who was ready to take the next step, the player that was on the cusp of becoming the superstar and getting that guy. And that's what Liverpool do. Time and time again, they they find players who, Luis Diaz, as you mentioned there, has just come in and all of a sudden is a key player for them, almost immediately from the moment he's 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 arrived at Anfield. And I think that is the sign of... The, that signing in particular was... was an important one for Liverpool because Michael Edwards, who is the who was the sporting director at Liverpool and was credited with putting in place a lot of the recruitment stuff that was very successful for Liverpool, he left Liverpool last year, and so that Luis Diaz signing was just proof that okay, Edwards might have might have started this, he might have established the structure, but the structure's still in place, and now that is ingrained into the club itself, and they're going to continue doing the things that they've been doing the last few years. So, yeah, sorry sorry to say, but I think Liverpool are. Are, uh, they're not going to fall away in terms of the recruitment anytime, anytime soon. I think they're very good at that. Uh, final category, Graham Ruthven, uh, fan engagement, supporter engagement. Uh, which teams do you think of as just having the best supporter outreach, the best atmospheres, whatever it might be? Yeah, so my first pick is definitely very left field, and I'm pretty confident it's not going to be on on your left uh, on your list. So that's uh, it's Motherwell FC in right. Scotland. They are. The best community club club in Scotland by quite a distance, certainly the best professional club. They have so many different schemes and programs to help people in their community. They recognize just how important it is to be the focus of that community in ways that go way, way, way beyond soccer. They do a lot of things for mental health awareness. There's a bit of a crisis in Lanarkshire where Motherwell are, are, are based and there's a bit of a crisis with suicide particularly among young men and they have done loads on on that like so much um more more than any i think any kind of government arm or anything like that has has done and the club this season gave away free season tickets to fans who couldn't afford them this season maybe they'd been hit by the covid pandemic they'd lost their jobs or so or or something like that and the, the club gave those fans free season tickets so they're just they're just very good at that sort of thing and and um, it's kind of at the core of they're not the most successful team on the pitch. They don't win titles. They very rarely make cup finals. Um, sometimes they end up in relegation battles. But I think they, the the core of why they actually think they exist is probably that that sort of stuff is the community things and that kind of guides everything they do. So I, I have to mention Motherwell in this section. I, I, I like that one a lot, Graham. And I think you took it in a different direction, but I think a better direction is to talk about the engagement, the relations with the community, how connected they are, because I think that will make the team ultimately more beloved, more of just an institution there versus, yeah, giving out free tickets or a voucher for a free beverage. I'm sure people appreciate that, but I don't know if it builds that level of connectivity you need to truly be one of those truly successful clubs. Are there other ones mm-hmm. who you think find the balance of community engagement, but also having a, a pretty raucous atmosphere behind them? Um, I think uh, the biggest club I had down in this regard was actually... Um was actually Barcelona. I'm not sure if I would I would say uh, a, a raucous atmosphere, but I, I went down the route of looking at the, the kind of socios model and how everything, because of that model, everything is put to a fan vote. So the, the, the fans always feel like they're very engaged in, in what the team is doing on the pitch. Most recently, you had the, the redevelopment of the Camp Nou, um, which is a very expensive project, and that was put to the socios for a vote. That required the Barcelona board to reveal all the final financial d- details of the project, how it was going to be funded, where the money was coming from, which I think a, a lot of us had that question. Um, but it's, it's coming from a loan from, from Goldman Sachs. 
and um, how long it was going to take to get paid back. And there's there's just like a transparency in a lot of the decision making, which I I don't think a lot of the big clubs certainly at that level they they don't they don't really have that to the to the same degree. So despite everything. Barcelona have had their troubles, but actually I would say in terms of fan engagement, they're still one of the, the best at the elite level. And even down to the things like they, they have elections for their president. So if you don't like the direction of the club, you have an opportunity to change that, whether it's through a vote of no confidence or a, an election follow, following a, a resignation or just the, the election cycle. Um, you know, the number of years, I think it's five years. You, there's a, an election every five years. So you, fans get their opportunity to, to have a say in the running of the club. And when you look at a lot of the Premier League clubs and some of the bigger clubs in Europe, that is not something that is afforded to, to, to many fan bases. Should we include just like most of the Bundesliga on this list? Because I think, yeah. I think of how the, the atmosphere in the two games I went to when I was in Germany was insanity. It was just so intense. And those were just for like, I mean, uh, Frankfurt was them just. So, what games were those? What 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 games were those? It was Frankfurt beating Bayern Munich five to one, so that's understandable. And then it was Dusseldorf Cologne, which I believe is a derby, uh, and it was Dusseldorf at home for that one. But both of those, it was the Frankfurt game was the loudest thing I have ever experienced. I could not believe how loud that stadium was from start to finish, and I and I think there is. It is just like, maybe it's just, it is how it is everywhere. But for me, from the United States, it's just a different thing. But just the, it's it's that feeling of the entire city knows that this game is happening. Everyone is out. Yeah. It's a social event. It is part of the fabric of living in that city. And I think anytime you get that, and I think you probably get it with a lot of big cities and big clubs, and probably even smaller clubs, it's like the whole town shuts down. But I think... Anytime it feels like the club is part of the everyday lives of the people who live in that area, it's going to resonate that much more. And I think the Bundesliga, the fan engagement they have, the ownership structure they have, the amount of beer on offer, that doesn't hurt either. Uh, That does, I say... I think I tend to think of the Bundesliga as being one where fan engagement is pretty good. I can't tell if that's just my my bias showing and if that's actually if you went a little bit deeper, we would see that there's a lot of fan unrest in the Bundesliga. And I think that's the case for a few teams. But for the most part, I think of that as a pretty stable, well attended, connected to their supporters league. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There has been some unrest with UEFA over a lot of the the ticket prices, but obviously that is that is separate from from the clubs. And in a lot of cases, the, the clubs are actually backing their supporters in in those protests. So I guess that would that would add to the sense that there's a lot of fan engagement in in Germany. When you say a, a town that or a city where you know there's a game on, I would I would put forward Leeds ooh, in that respect, ooh, I like that um, where I, I think Leeds it, that's that club is. At the center of that town and everything that that that, that happens in that town and that city. Um, so when when there's a game, I've been to a Leeds United match before. You you really feel like every pub in in the the city center is gearing up for the game. Everyone's talking about the game, and yeah, that that I I had a similar feeling in in, in Leeds than maybe you you had in in, like in Germany with the matches you I went like, to. Uh, if we're gonna stay in England for a moment, I would add also I think I would add Leicester to this conversation mostly because when their owner uh, tragically passed uh, in the helicopter crash, uh, there was just such an outpouring of grief and sympathy and sadness and obviously that is going to be the case when anyone dies uh certainly when an owner does but 
it, it felt like there was a connection there. There was an appreciation for what the owner had done, for the way the team had been able to kind of come from where they were to winning the title, to being this kind of pillar of stability and lots of talent and development and selling those players on. And, and it feels like there was such an appreciation for the ownership structure. I think his son is still uh, in charge or is now in charge. But I, I think of Lester as being one where it seems like there was a pretty strong connection between ownership and the supporters and the team itself. Yeah, and and when you're looking at the Premier League, that they were one of the they were one of the clubs. There's there's such a thing as the the fan engagement index, Ooh. Ooh. Um, which looks at all four divisions in English football. It, it's released every season. It takes a, a load of things into consideration, from governance to transparency. Um, to how the fans feel their views are being represented and the decisions being made. The Premier League, let me tell you, does not fare particularly well in that, hmm. in that, in that index. Most of the bottom positions are held by Premier League clubs. The exceptions are, uh, Everton, strangely, because I, I, I think their fans are pretty unhappy at the moment, but I guess maybe they still feel they're, they're being represented in some way. And then the other example is, is, is Leicester City, who are, who are normally quite high. And that list, and I agree with with everything you, you say about um, the ownership that they've they have there. Yes, they are uh, rich, wealthy, foreign owners, um, but it does feel like there is a local connection there, and they are rooted in their community in some way. So uh, we have reached all like the end of going through all the criteria. Before we kind of summarize, I will say again. We have covered a lot of ground. We haven't done a ton of work when it comes to South America, Central America, even the United States, to African clubs, to Asian clubs, and so, uh, and, and a lot of probably smaller European clubs as well. So I welcome people's suggestions for things we might have missed, things that could have been included, reasons why they think a certain team is particularly well run, and maybe that'll be a thing that we'll either do like an update episode or we'll just continue to evolve this as we go. But I, I welcome... All of that because I love hearing about uh, teams that make people happy and the reasons for that. Graham, if we're going with our sort of short list of best run clubs based on everything we've said today, it feels like a few teams that kept popping up in our conversation would be Sevilla, Ajax, Dortmund, Mm -hmm. Lyon, although I might have been the driving force for that one. And then I would add Man City, Bayern, Benfica, and Porto. Yeah, I think that's fair. Man City obviously yeah. have huge yeah. uh, qualification and caveats there, but yeah, certainly um, that's that seems like a pretty a pretty solid list if we're looking at the the kind of elite level. As you say, I'm sure there are loads of examples further down the leagues that we just don't know about because um, we we can't know about every example. But yeah, um, that that feels like a solid list. I think that's actually eight teams if we include man city would you throw in both of the basque clubs to give us an even 10 or do you think there's another team that belongs on that list that i didn't mention um uh liverpool i think probably should be on that on that 10 so i i would probably put athletic club ahead of real sociedad just because of how pure their their approach is and how it the 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 level of uh, longevity in the top flight and the consistency that they have so i'd have athletic club and probably liverpool to round out the top 10 Uh, so we've got 10 in there one of them has a great big asterisk because they've got a great big amount of oil and money behind them uh but overall (laughs) i I enjoyed this gram i enjoy talking about teams that do things well and i look forward to getting into more detail on a specific team or a specific category we've gone through because i think we could do an episode on each of those categories and it would still be 
almost as long as this yeah. episode. And I should add, Graham has gone above his like hard out time. So Graham, thank you <laughs> so much for going so long today to talk about all of these many, many, many clubs. Anything else to add from you? Or would you just like to say, uh, it's been fun? Goodbye. <laughs> no, all I'll say is my hard out was related to the Rangers yep. Europa League game and they're they're losing 1-0 at this point. Uh, so I've been multitasking uh, for the last uh, 27 minutes. All right, so this minutes. is my fault uh, that Rangers so are losing. As soon as we hang up, Graham, they will yes. equalize. It's all going to be fine. Graham Ruffin, thank you for taking so much time to talk about the best run clubs in the world. No problem, Taylor. That, that was a fun one. I, I enjoyed I, that. Man. Always good to talk to you. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with Soccer 101.